0: Welcome to the Heart of Leaders podcast, where each week we'll be exploring the frontiers of leadership with those who lead from the heart and put their people first, knowing that ultimately, all team accomplishments are driven by people. They know that when they take care of their people, their people will take care of customers, lower costs, and drive customer loyalty and company profitability. These leaders believe that for most companies, culture trumps strategy. And culture starts with how you treat your people and how they treat each other. I'm your host, Rick Barrera, head of faculty for the Heart of Leaders training program in Denver, Colorado, where we teach extraordinary leaders how to build and lead high-performance teams who can consistently deliver exceptional results. So we're back today with Heart of Leaders faculty member Rick Tetzeli to discuss leaders who think differently on the Heart of Leaders podcast. I'm your host, Rick Barrera, head of faculty for the Heart of Leaders training program. Rick Tetzeli has met many amazing people in his career, including Steve Jobs, about whom he wrote the book Becoming Steve Jobs. This is the real Steve Jobs book for those of you who want the inside story. Right now, let's ask Rick about the other fascinating leaders that he's gotten to know. So, Rick, who's the most interesting, different thinker that you've interviewed? Well...
1: I don't know that I don't know that I have a, a most interesting. Um, what I'm interested in is people who break the mold as leaders um, who are hard to slot into any particular category. And there are there are quite a few that I've talked to um, who who fit. They range from the CEO of the current CEO of GM. To a biomedical researcher and ethnobotanist who's figured out a really interesting way of getting medical folks to collaborate, which isn't always easy. To the guys who run Lyft, um, who have a whole different attitude about managing and about Running a company that's led to a kind of brand of differentiation that's really helped them against Uber. So I always try to find these folks who don't you know fit into stereotypes who are who have had different who have had interesting career paths, whose views on running things are, Radically different from the norm, and often I'm, you know, really looking for people who are who are servant leaders and who are who are people who have heart. Actually, as it turns out,
0: fascinating. You know, and I, <laughs>
1: <laughs> so I've been writing and editing uh, business stories for over 25 years now, and you know, you start looking for people who defy expectations. And so that's who I find myself writing about.
0: Okay, well, you gave us a good tease. So let's go down through the list. CEO of GM.
1: So Mary Barra is the first woman uh, to run GM, you know, which in, in and of itself is pretty interesting. And there are so many things that are interesting about Barrow. Right now, as we speak, the company is under assault from activist investors who want it to create two levels of stock in an effort to, to give a certain class of investors a much higher return. The stock has been flat since she's been there. And that is you know so that's that's i guess one indication of performance that people look at very closely and from that standpoint she hasn't been successful everything else she's done however has succeeded and what she's done what she's done matters <laughs> so much more than the stock price she has rebuilt the company as a quality manufacturer so gm cars across the board are considered of much higher quality than they were six, 10, 20 years ago. She has stabilized the company financially as they came out of bankruptcy. She is also completely reinventing the culture. GM's culture was so notoriously lame that it became...
0: Is, is that a technical term?
1: yeah it's a technical term lame. um the uh <laughs> lame <laughs> they they um uh, they became famous for the gm nod um you know you can actually find this on wikipedia um anyway the gm nod is when you're in a meeting and you nod your head in agreement and then you leave the meeting and immediately do nothing and it was, a, it was a culture where people were blaming each other, where, you know, things had gone downhill for a long time at GM, and there'd been a lot of waste. Um, they'd never managed their union problems well. And she's used the disaster of GM's bankruptcy as this event to turn around the company, but not only the not only is it the bankruptcy; it's also something else that came out of that culture, which was the ignition switch flaw in Cobalts and other small cars that they made, that has resulted in hundreds of deaths. So they've been they have a, a fund they're paying out the victims for. But she has to the families of victims but she has used this as sort of a never again moment for the whole company and she has used it as a as a moment to say we are going to change our behaviors and She's done it in an interesting way. I mean, first of all, she does it by example. She herself is a 30-plus-year veteran of GM whose father was a dye manufacturer in a factory all his life. She's an engineer, but she's run the design side, and she's run, she ran HR at one point. And you know, I spent a lot of time out there, and people on the ground really believe in Mary Mary Barra, and they they believe that she does what she says she's going to do. She is also doing this by creating these networks within the company that are change networks. So um, they started something called GM 2020. Um, That's started in 2015. And She hired a professor from Wharton who came in, and the first thing he did was sort of they picked 30 really young, interesting folks at the company, and they said, go out and ask, each of you gets to ask one mentor to join you in this process. And so they started with a group of 60 people, and... The idea is to use these small networks of people to address problems of the GM culture. And so they've got all these groups, and they're resolving things. Now they're resolving problems ranging from how do you get from one building to another on Warren's GM campus, which is huge and doesn't have enough parking for everybody, to how do you solve certain engineering problems? How do you solve marketing to millennials? These are all questions that have been taken on by these small networks of change agents around the company. And they've now got 2,000 people working on this who have all, everybody has volunteered to be a part of this. And that's 2,000 out of 220,000 employees. <laughs> and the idea is, you know, that you can seed behavioral change. And that's 2,000 people in a company, you know, that's a company that's around, that's global. It's all over the world. They've got factories all over the world and so they're starting with Southeast Michigan the area around Detroit and trying to change the culture there and then you try and get the culture changed elsewhere but the culture changing the culture at headquarters was the key to everything because if that was if that was stultified the whole thing was going to be stultified. So what I think Mary Barra is doing is what I like is that she's Changing behavior in a very sensible way. She shows her full commitment to it. She shows up at all the events. She is there. She is responding to emails from employees and from customers. So, example is a key thing. There's, there's a big problem at most corporations where HR will say something about we're going to do this great initiative and everybody's going to have a say. And and then, you know, nothing happens or, you know, everybody, everybody has their say and nobody listens. Her program, they have GM 2020 has, you know, accountability. They meet regularly to see what happens. There's a meeting. The executive team of GM, the top executive team of GM meets with these groups of of change agents every two months to go over things i mean so it's she's responsive and then it's not just that she personally is a good example her leadership group is a good example and she knew that this was critical because gm's leadership group had been always portrayed as so arrogant so she now there are four people who really run the company um the CFO, the president, the head of products, and, and Mary Barra. The president and the head of products, those are two guys who were contenders for her job.
0: That's rough. That's, that's, that's pretty unusual.
1: But yeah, it's really unusual. The CFO comes from a family that has over 300 years of service at General Motors. So it's this blend of insiders and outsiders who are trying to, remake this company in a sane, transparent fashion. And it's one of the great experiments in culture transformation, certainly in the industrial economy that we've ever seen. And she is not bold and loudmouthed, and, you know, doesn't think of herself as a visionary. She's kind of, you know, if you if you blend if blended an MBA with somebody who whose father was a dye manufacturer who you know dye manufacturer for thirty five years she's exactly what you'd expect but there's heart to what she's doing and everybody can feel that there's a commitment to turning around the company through behavior and through actions that are based on solid principles.
0: So she's
1: somebody I admire deeply.
0: So, so tell me about this eth- ethnobotanist. Is that, is that what you said? Yes. So this is a story about a <laughs> first guy. First tell this me is, what an this. ethnobotanist is.
1: Right. So an ethnobotanist is somebody who studies indigenous cultures and, and their diet and their flora, hoping to find things that can be applied in Western medicine. So this guy, uh, his name is Paul Cox. Um, he lives now in Jackson, Wyoming. His uh, father was a forest ranger, and I think his mother was a professor. They, they were from out there. And um, his ethnobotany, his research, led him to a really interesting discovery about a kind of ALS or Alzheimer's or Parkinson's that hit this Chamorro tribe in Guam. And it hit them at a rate that was 100 times anything you'd see anywhere else in the world. And what he figured out amazingly was that the Chamorro were getting a huge blast of this toxin called BMAA because they were eating lots and lots of stewed flying foxes (laughs) uh i haven't had that
0: how's it taste
1: (laughs) yeah neither have i they would um they would boil uh boil a flying fox um eyes legs wings and all in milk and then eat it and um they loved this. They, they, in fact, they loved it so much that they eventually, um, eventually, the species went went extinct. There's um, the only way they can get flying foxes now on Guam is if they sneak onto the U.S. Army base there, and where there are still some flying foxes because the servicemen didn't eat them, and uh, so they go around and sort of sneak around the B-52s and shoot. <laughs> <laughs> flying foxes. So he, this is 2002, he makes this discovery, figures out that this toxin is getting from a cycad tree, which is a native tree, to to Guam and other, they're, they're, cycads are all over the place, but they have, they have these big seeds, and the seeds have this toxin called BMAA in them. And so he figured out, okay, this is why they're getting this disease. People had puzzled about this. Scientists had puzzled about it for decades. And then one day he's driving with a fellow scientist in Hawaii, and they're passing a, a, a set of cycad trees. And he realizes that the way that the, the, way that the cycad trees in Guam get the toxin, is through blue-green algae. And if those trees are getting it through blue-green algae, well then anybody else in the world who's near green-blue algae might actually be exposed to this toxin. And that might explain, or partly explain, why so many people get Alzheimer's or these other neurological diseases. So now we get to the managing part of this, the leadership part of this, which is how is he going to figure out if his hypothesis is true? Because he can't do it on his his own. You know, he's an ethnobotanist. He's not a neurologist. He's not a chemist. He's not a biologist. You know, he doesn't do demographic studies. So what he's done over the past 15 years is assemble this sort of virtual pharmaceutical. It's a nonprofit with five scientists who are employed full-time in Jackson and then another 50 scientists around the world in all these different disciplines. And they all do research built around this toxin, BMAA, and they talk to one another and they communicate openly. And, you know, what's, what's so interesting about Cox is that the medical profession is so siloed, the medical research world, because people are protecting their IP so carefully. But he figured out how to get all these people to collaborate and they all sign an agreement that says that they're going to share their information and and What's great is he has great empathy. He's wicked smart. He can learn things quickly. And so, in a way, he's the perfect person to be the center of a collaborative network. Because, you know, one of the key things in any corporate situation is, you know, knowing what you don't know, being comfortable with the fact that you don't know it being able to learn about it, and being able to give credit to the people who do know about it. So in this little 50-person group that he's assembled, he mirrors some of the practices that corporate leaders have have to follow. That group, they all know exactly what they're researching. They communicate clearly. They're able to follow the science where it leads. So what's happened is that each discovery these discoveries that each person makes build the whole case for this hypothesis to the point where they've now shown that they did an experiment with vervets which is a kind of primate and the vervets got varying levels of bmaa and a couple of the some of them also got a a potential antidote to bmaa And the brains of the vervets that were given high doses of BMAA showed the exact same kind of tissue damage as the brains of people who have died of Alzheimer's. And so now he's got a phase two trial of this thing called L-serine, which is another naturally occurring amino acid that seems to provide an antidote to BMAA. So he's testing that in um, a phase two trial with ALS patients, and a phase two trial with Alzheimer's patients to see if L-serine slows down the progress of their decline. It probably, on its own, it can't reverse the disease, but in phase one, at least, it showed the potential to you know slow it down significantly and he's he's got lots of anecdotal stories about people who feel that it has slowed down but it doesn't really matter whether the science is right or not i mean we're going to find that that's that's what we're going to find out but it's the it's the ability to generate this problem solving group and coordinate it and as a leader he understands how much all the members of the group get from other members of the group. This kind of collaboration expands the world of everybody who's a part of this group.
0: Yeah, so, so that's very consistent. So the Scripps Institute in La Jolla also does this sort of cross-functional, you know, cross-discipline, Kind of research, and and uh, it's quite interesting because the the research shows that where the breakthroughs come from are not typically in the core field, but in the field most adjacent to it.
1: Yeah, it's really. Um, I mean, in in this case, they have um, they have so many different things going on. Um, you know, so they have marine biologists showing that blue-green algae blooms in the Gulf of Mexico are poisoning the seafood, especially the shellfish that people in Miami and eat, you know. So they have the marine biologists. They have the neurologists not only doing brain tissue studies, but they're also researching, you know, how does this happen in the brain? What's going on in the brain? So they're working on that. You know, there's cellular biologists looking at what's going on inside the cells. There are even these demographic guys who are now finding clusters of ALS around polluted bodies of water, um, including, you know, natural water lakes in New Hampshire and other places. Or another, another, there are other pockets of, of, of ALS that are close to the polluted runoff from agribusinesses. And none of this, Cox himself could not have done any of this. You know, he's, he could have done some of this research, but not, you know, he couldn't, he couldn't possibly be where he is now without having created this collaborative system. Very cool.
0: All right, well let's talk about the guys at Lyft. Well, I think one of the, I think that, you know, the
1: the whole automotive autonomous car thing is so interesting. So the guys at Lyft are Logan Green and John Zimmer and they are this amazing contrast to Travis Kalanick at Uber. You know, Uber has gotten in trouble for all these different kinds of things. And, you know, this hard-driving, crazy culture that that he's created there. And um, these guys have created the opposite culture. Like, you go to their San Francisco offices and it's all pink and there are balloons everywhere. And, (laughs) uh, you know, people, you know, make each other smoothies at lunch and... And if you have a problem with Lyft, with, with the ride you hail on Lyft, you can get a human being on the phone, which is not really something that happens all that often when you have a problem with an Uber ride. And these guys really, really, really come to this from a background of how do we improve urban living for everybody the world is going, to be, you know, becoming more and more urban. What can we do to make that life just better? You know, how can we create people-centric uh, cities? And they believe that one of the ways is through autonomous cars, which can reduce congestion significantly and allow for more land to be built for parks and stuff like that instead of roads. <laughs> and less pollution would result also, and so, these are two guys who have chosen to run their company according to their beliefs, you know, it's a very collaborative culture, it's very, you know, it's intense, it's a Silicon Valley startup, and the, First of all, they run their culture according to their beliefs. It, it, so there's a consistency from the way they treat employees to the way they treat drivers to the way they treat passengers to the way they operate the business overall. They're all connected. And second of all, they've, they've run that business the whole time in the shadow of this bigger company, Uber, that seemingly should wipe Lyft out. Uber has over a $70 billion valuation and has raised billions of dollars and really wants to win everything. And we'll tell you, we'll explain to you why the increasing returns are such that it will win everything. And these guys have soldiered on despite that. And it's very interesting because... Uber's culture is the company's greatest flaw now. So what what seemed to be its greatest advantage is now its greatest flaw. This hard driving, take no prisoners thing. The excesses that can come of that are killing Uber. Meanwhile, these guys have kept running their company in this in this way and they're starting to make some really interesting partnerships with other companies around the world in this automotive business that you know don't want Uber to rule the world and what's interesting about these guys is that they've kept to this philosophy as that they you know that they are believers in doing good through autonomous cars. And they've managed to stick it out for the long run and seriously compete. And the Silicon Valley culture doesn't celebrate that. Silicon Valley culture celebrates hard driving, give it your all, bust your ass, do all the work, you know, no niceties. And we may be at a point where that vision of Silicon Valley is going to have to change. is going to be is going to have to be tempered over the next few years because we're starting to see some of the limits of that of that philosophy. It's very hard to take a company to make a company really, really big when all you're about is single-minded, determined vision. Um, you need to have a broader view of the world. And these guys have a broader view of the world than Uber does.
0: Well, you know, you mentioned this to me, I don't know, probably a year ago that you thought there, you know, there was an interesting contrast between the two. And then I started in October living in Southern California without a car. So Mm. I've, (laughs) everyone (laughs) thinks I'm crazy. Uh, but I travel a lot. So Uh I, I, I decided I was going to go without a car for a year and see what happened. And so I've used both Uber and Lyft and the fascinating distinction you made for me, which I hadn't thought about was, you know, when you, when you take something that's inherently online, like Amazon, it's Mm -hmm. operation, you know, it's, it's about operational excellence and it's about you know, the interface and the ease of use and all of that kind of stuff versus what what you brought to my attention was that, you know, Uber and Lyft are very human experiences. You know, I'm going to get in a stranger's car. Uh, you know, they're going to play whatever music they play. They're going to drive how they drive. Uh, we're going to have conversations, right? So that So that the mm-hmm. experience is really much more human-centered. Mm-hmm. And I, and so I've really been looking at that as I look at, you know, I, as I use both services and, and, and you know, who likes to drive for Uber, who likes to drive for Lyft, and why. Um, a lot of people drive for both. But there is, in, in, at least I've experienced, I think, that the Lyft drivers seem to be more customer-focused. I
1: think there's something else going on, too right now which is kind of um, kind of plays into this which is that we live in an era where talent matters more than it did individual talent matters more than it did 20 years ago Um, you know and this is partly the result of technology startups but also you know more and more companies seeing that you know working in small teams is the way to go and we're also living in a time when talent is more mobile than it's ever been. So if you do believe that talent is critical, then you're going to have to treat your talent well. At companies like Uber, treating your talent well, for the most part, means paying them buckets of money and buckets more than than people who are merely good. I actually think that's a good idea. I think think the best talent should be paid boatloads of money because that's part of keeping them and because you think of how does the work of one employee translate into value for the company. And these kinds of people can create enormous value. But you've also got to think about other things. You've got to think about the human parts of their lives and about parental leave and about the conditions that they work in at, at the office and their partners and such. And, you know, Uber hasn't done as good a job of that as Lyft has. And so it's, a, you know, I just think... I, think that it's not just being nice <laughs> uh, to manage your company with heart. It's also in your self-interest, I think.
0: Right. So is there a common thread that runs through those who think differently?
1: Well, I think peripheral vision is a big deal. I think they all are capable of seeing the world beyond their product or their company and understanding and taking pieces of information from that knowledge that they have and applying it to their products and the way they're marketed. Um, You know, Richard Branson's a great example of that, you know, seeming so in tune with the culture as a whole and making that work for his companies. So I think peripheral vision is is a key thing. I think that an intense... Belief in oneself in a faith in your own mission is necessary um, for somebody who thinks differently. There's got to be, you know, to be truly expansive in your thinking, you've got to be pretty grounded. And, you know, people say, for instance, that Steve, you know, they think of Steve Jobs and they don't think of a grounded person. But actually, you know, as a private as a private individual, you know, he knew exactly what he was doing and what he was about. And he was very comfortable with it. I think that these guys who think different in that way, you know, are, are like that. They're grounded. They recognize the world around them. I think they value, I think thinking, different, thinking differently by definition means respect for others. Because part of thinking differently is knowing that other people have, like, have great ideas that you aren't ever going to have. And so how do you get those ideas out of them and translate that into value for your company? So I think thinking differently and normally involves some sort of expansive, generous vision of the
0: world. Yeah, Interesting. So at the Center for Heart-Led Leadership, we talk a lot about how leaders treat their people. Do you believe that how a leader treats their people can create a real competitive advantage? Yes,
1: I think it can, but I think that can take different forms. I mean, first of all, why does it create a competitive advantage? I think, you know, I think for two reasons. One is that talent matters enormously, and if talent feels better in your workplace than they might feel in somebody else's workplace. That's a big plus. So I think that's a key. I think it also is, you know, treating your people better leads to better collaboration. And, you know, that's sort of like the Paul Cox story. If you accept that this is a time where industries have porous borders and where ideas can come from all, your best ideas can come from all over the place, then a culture that encourages people to share and participate is going to do better than one that doesn't.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's about the flow of ideas in and out. Yeah, exactly. I think
1: that we used to live in more hierarchical structures. We used to have more of an emphasis on not making a mistake. And now people accept that mistakes are going to happen regard whether you know you're in a hierarchy or whether you're in a flatter organization, mistakes are gonna be made. But if they're all in the in the effort, in the if they're all around the company's, you know, central mission, then it's okay. That's something that you know Silicon Valley has sort of taught the rest of us, and I just think you know it makes a lot of sense that you get more participation, more collaboration if if you treat your employees
0: well. So maybe this is redundant, but how how important is leadership to organizational success? I think it's
1: critical, and I think it can take all different forms. Um, you know, I do think, for instance, in the case of Uber, you can make the argument that you know, it's gotten so big and so successful because of Kalanick and his, his approach. Um, and, you know, it may, it may continue to do that, but he's going to have to change at any rate. rate. And the change that, you know, the board wants to see from him now is, is change in terms of how he treats people and, you know, from, ranging from drivers to fellow employees. I see a lot of examples of great leaders who have considerable humility and don't feel the need to impose themselves on everyone else. And I think that is a model that can work repeatedly. One of the things that we found about Steve Jobs is that there were traits of his that were very important for any leader who, you know, wants to empower really talented people, really talented creative people, and get the most out of them. The overall package he may have come across to many people as brusque and abrupt and all, you know, and mean, but with the people he cared about intensely, the talent he cared about most, he was pretty transparent. He really engaged their ideas. He really listened. So, you know, I don't think Steve Jobs is a model for us all, but there are elements of what he did that definitely are.
0: So is there a is there a young leader that's not on our radar right now that you believe we should know about?
1: Well, I like, I mean, as I said, I like John Zimmer and Logan Green at, at Lyft, Stuart Butterfield at... Um, Slack is another terrific leader who has built something up to you know an amazing point. I mean today there's rumors that Microsoft is gonna buy his company for nine billion dollars, so he's managed to make take a company that was you know making something that was akin to chat for <laughs> corporate networks. And he's turned it into a communication and collaboration tool for companies. And he's a very compassionate, cool, down in the weeds with with his employees kind of leader. And um, and he's really he's in a, he's a really impressive young leader.
0: So, what's the number one thing you believe leaders are missing today that? most hurts their bottom line results. I think
1: it gets back to the talent idea. I think you really have to you have to look at what's going on in society and understand how critical talent is now. So I think many leaders still value the organization and the order and the hierarchy instead of really embracing the idea that you, know, you need to pay attention to individual talent a lot and move fast according to where that those, those talented people are directing your company. So it's almost like, you know, it's not like you design, a you create a strategy and then get people who can deliver that strategy. It's more like you create an environment where the talented people can create your company's strategy.
0: Right. And it's, a, and it's a lot more around teams and talent. You know, as you said earlier, high performance teams, small groups of people, you know, led by some very smart folks.
1: Uh, it is, you know, I mean, it, it, it is. Um, and I think, I think that's hard for people, you know, in their 50s and 60s, um, you know, to, to get used to um, that kind of environment. And that's why you have, you know, CEOs who, who don't seem to have adjusted to that world.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, the world is changing at a so much faster pace that the organization has to adapt. And, uh, you know, the smaller teams are more organic, right? So they can flow and morph and adapt way faster than, a, you know, any kind of a hierarchical Exactly. Structure. Exactly. So you mentioned humility. In the Heart of Leaders program, we talk about the combination of passion and humility. But I think the leaders that you talked about today are that. Are are they not? Uh,
1: yeah, I think so. I do. I think they have passion and humility. Um, I do, and th- that's something that I, you know, deeply admire about about them and what they're doing. I, this isn't to say that you know those kinds of people always win. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, you know, sometimes the Travis Kalanics, um win, and you know he's certainly got the passion and he certainly lacks the humility
0: but it depends also on how you define winning
1: exactly it depends on how
0: you define winning and
1: what i'm always interested in as a journalist is interviewing people who like i've talked to a lot of people who have produced amazing profits and increased revenues and such and such and such that in and of itself doesn't interest me as much anymore you know it's also i want to know Okay, so how does this play? How does this work with your life? What's the value you see in doing this?
0: And what's the value to the community or to society?
1: What's the value to the community or the society? And more and more we are seeing examples of leaders who lead in large part by by taking those things to heart.
0: So since you're the expert interviewer, what question should I have asked you that I didn't? (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I mean, you know, the Steve Jobs thing is a really good question. You know, is Steve Jobs a heart-led leader? And it's a very, I think that, that that's a very complicated thing. Um, I, you know, and the way I look at it is that, you know, you take him as a whole human and and there are pieces that you really admire and there are pieces that you don't. But in terms of if the people who work for you most closely feel that working for you was the most profound experience of their lives when they did the best work of their lives, there's something, you know, truly worthwhile about that.
0: Yep. So the the two stories that uh, I, I you know that, that you and I have talked about with Steve Jobs that I think are kind of most interesting to me. One was that he was binary in his feedback, so everything that people showed him was either shit or neat, <laughs> and and so they knew whether they needed to go change it and do something different or they liked it and it needed to keep going on the same path. And while you know, maybe they aren't the two best words that he could have chosen. I think, you know, the courage to look at a piece of work and give that kind of straight feedback consistently is part of what drove the excellence there.
1: Yeah. And I, I also think that, you know, I think that,
0: you know, hard led leadership
1: as a, as a concept is, is a good one. It makes a lot of sense. Does every heart, you know, I know you, you have a bunch of principles of hard led leadership. Yeah. People are going to show, reveal that part, you know, themselves as heart-led leaders in different, in different ways, um, you know, and and I think that I think that, you know, Jobs did reveal himself as a heart-led leader in many situations to his closest employees. I think that he also, you know, I I think that there are ways in which he failed as a leader to, you know, people, in his, people in, at Apple who were not stars and who, you know, he, he just would not necessarily give a whole lot of attention to or be all that nice to. But he accepted that side of himself, understanding that, you know, that they didn't fit with sort of his grander mission.
0: Right. other the other story that you told me that I think is pretty profound is that, you know, while China was his biggest market and also his biggest supplier, he never went to China because, and he also didn't go to industry conferences because he wanted to be at home for dinner with his family.
1: Yeah, he didn't travel. He, He rarely traveled. I mean, he did, of course, do some. Um, mostly associated with product launches, and um, he was home for dinner almost all the time.
0: That that's pretty impressive for you know for the you know the biggest company on the planet.
1: Right, and I think that you know I think that he really truly had an expansive mind. I mean, they weren't the biggest company on the planet when he was there, but he had this expansive mind, and he and he so he chose. He chose what he wanted to do, and he didn't spend a lot of time vacillating about whether he wanted to be home for dinner or not. He wanted to be home for dinner, so he made it happen. You know, he wanted the iPod to have a flywheel, so he made it happen. (laughs) Um, It was, (laughs) he was somebody who was always bringing information in and responding as best he could at that moment, and he would change his mind about things later, but that's what I mean about the sort of um, inner confidence that heart-led leaders need to have. Uh, Because if you you really consciously think to yourself, well, I want to be a heart-led leader, or I want to make myself more of a heart-led leader, you are setting yourself up for hurt, Um, when things don't go well, um, because, you know, you, you, will you'll, you'll have to do layoffs or you'll have, you know, if people aren't performing up to speed, you'll have to, you'll have to, you know, have some really hard talks with people and, you know, you want to be as you are trying to be as supportive and as kind and clear as you can be. But, you know, you also have to be tough.
0: So you made the statement we we've, we've got the core principles and the first one though is we before me. And I think what you've described in, you know, from Mary Barrett to, you know, to Lyft to you know, the other examples is that the we before me I think was very strong in all those examples.
1: In all of them. And and that's really yeah. And That's critical. I would say that there are plenty of people who are we before me who are not heart-led leaders. I think that um, in Silicon Valley, you have lots and lots of people who really do think they're going to try to change the world for the better, but their way of doing that through their startups and through their businesses isn't a heart-led approach.
0: Excellent. Well, so that's where the other principles come in. So, what happy thought would you like to leave our listeners with today? <laughs> what happy thought would I like to leave our listeners? We always like to it end on a happy note. We're being hard I think here. the happy note. I think I think the,
1: the the rise of talent and the the rise of small teams is a great empowering trend both for the members of those teams and for leaders. It creates a a more personal tone to leadership. And I think we are moving towards an era where, I, I mean, we're in an era where how we work, when we work, where we work from, our needs as humans are considered much more now than they were in my father's era. And that is an excellent thing.
0: Yeah, I agree. All right, well, Rick, thank you for joining us, and uh, hopefully we'll have you back one of these days to share
1: some more. Thanks, Rick. It was great to talk to you.
0: Are you ready to take the next step into Heart-Led Leadership? If so, it's time to enroll in the Heart of Leaders training course. The first session starts soon, and we will sell out, so you'll want to enroll early. You'll get to meet, learn from, and hang out with the extraordinary faculty members you've been listening to on this podcast, and you'll take your leadership skills to the next level. This course is made up of four three-day sessions for a total of 12 full days of learning. Skip the MBA and join us to learn firsthand from people who have faced some of the toughest leadership challenges ever. Hear their stories, learn their lessons, ask your questions, and don't go home until you're satisfied. It will be the best investment you've ever made in yourself and your career. We're filling up fast, so call 858-248-3162 today or visit our website at heartofleaderspodcast.com. We believe that Heart of Leaders is a movement started by boomers, accelerated by Gen Xers, and demanded by millennials. To learn more, find us online at heartofleaderspodcast.com where we blog, post articles, and book reviews and respond to your questions. We invite you to join the conversation.